0: Welcome to Act In Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. By the time this episode is released, Christmas will be right around the corner. If you celebrate Christmas like I do with my family, you probably gather around the tree to open gifts on Christmas morning, or you decorate cookies together, and maybe you also attend a church service or mass. But in communist China, there's a different tradition— during Christmas time in 2015, 1,700 churches were torn down or vandalized in China, a result of the Chinese government growing increasingly hostile to Christianity. Similar events took place last year as well, with the New York Times reporting that Early Rain Covenant Church had been shut down and members were forced to find somewhere else to celebrate Christmas. From reports of prison labor camps in the country to growing surveillance through technology, China is increasingly cracking down on freedom. This is all laid out in a new book from Encounter Books, titled Deceiving the Sky, Inside Communist China's Drive for Global Supremacy. The author, Bill Gertz, joins us on Act In Line today to discuss. He's a national security columnist for The Washington Times and a senior editor of The Washington Free Beacon. Don't forget that every week I put together a list of articles and resources in our show notes that I think you would really like, and you can check those out at blog.acton.org. That's blog.acton, A-C-T-O-N n.org. Also, because of the holiday, our podcast team is taking a little bit of time off, but we will be back with an episode in the new year on January 8th. If you are on the road at all this week, I also hope you have safe travels and a very merry Christmas.
1: Welcome to Acton Line. I'm your host, John Caritas. Today we welcome to the podcast Bill Gertz. He's the national security correspondent for The Washington Times. He has a new book out from Encounter. It's titled Deceiving the Sky, Inside Communist China's Drive for Global Supremacy. Welcome to the podcast, Bill.
2: Hi, good to be on the program.
1: You know, uh, we're recording this segment on December 18th. We're only a week out from Christmas. So before we get into some of the more specifics on the economic, the tech, the military threat that you've laid out in this book, we talk a little bit about religious freedom in China. I think that would be appropriate. Um, You you cite that in your book. And this time of year in China, there's a Christmas tradition. It's not about singing Christmas carols in setting up the tree. In Communist China, it's about bulldozing churches, raiding church services, following around pastors with mass surveillance, and ticking off boxes on their social credit scores. What is it about Christianity and other religions that so freaks out the Communist Party in China? What, what is the threat that they fear?
2: Yes. Uh, well, it's, it's an amazing thing. Uh, for many years, probably for the last ten to fifteen years there's been a tacit accommodation by the chinese government of unofficial christian churches in china and as you know there are there are millions tens of millions of believers in china and they've managed to uh... do pretty well and china has played a very sophisticated uh... influence game which was designed to allow these unofficial churches to operate. And then, as you mentioned, around Christmas time each year, they would select a few of these home churches and bulldoze them and arrest the pastors uh, in a very brutal and uh, uh, message-sending way. Make an example Um, of them, right? Yeah, and that that policy is changing uh, under the current dictator, Xi Jinping, and he has uh, assumed powers uh, that we haven't seen in this system uh, since Mao Zedong, who's been identified as perhaps the world's largest mass murderer uh, through his uh, operations in China to kill millions of Chinese. And now we have Xi Jinping. Um, He is into utter control and by that i mean the communist party of china is this i i say totalitarian uh, many people say it's authoritarian but it, its activities fit all the definitions of a totalitarian state complete control lack of freedom uh they do permit some uh liberty in terms of economic development but in terms of uh anything related to the communist party uh, they are uh, taking much stronger measures than they have in the past. And, and this is, includes a crackdown on religious groups, especially Christians. And, uh, again, they uh, they have been doing such things as forcing churches, uh, the official churches, to replace uh, biblical scripture with uh, the sayings of uh, Xi Jinping in, in the churches themselves.
1: So deifying their totalitarian leader, in other words.
2: Yes. Yeah. And so this is a a real threat. And again, a lot of the the groups that operated in China unofficially were very cautious against speaking out, and and they still are somewhat cautious in for speaking good reason out yeah. against this. And yeah. I. I hope that changes. I hope they begin to speak out much more forcefully and louder against the the atrocities being committed by the regime.
1: Is it simply the fact that we've seen this under other communist regimes? The communist party, the state, must be worshipped as a deity, uh, and there can be no challengers to that. There can be no alternative form of allegiance. And Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, all the other faiths, faiths, Pose a risk in that way? Would that be part of it?
2: Yes, it's clearly a challenge to the power. In fact, many uh, of the China specialists that I know they, they've often compared the Communist Party rule as as a quasi religion. Really. In other words, it has its own priesthoods, it has its own canon and doctrine, and anybody that challenges that, and of course Christianity and other religions do challenge that. Uh, Marxism Leninism is officially atheist. That hasn't changed. Um, now they've they've kind of insinuated some uh ancient Chinese nationalism and Chinese culture into their official ideology which is officially still atheist, but they do regard uh religion as a challenge to the domination ideological domination by the Communist Party.
1: Tell us a little bit about Xi Jinping. He's recently become whatever his title is. He's recently become president for life. Uh, he has assumed near total power. You describe him as a ruthless leader. He also has some curious role models that he admires, Hitler, Stalin, and Mao Zedong. What does this tell us about the man?
2: Um, Xi Jinping has uh several people that he admires uh, and several people that he despises, and the people he admires are Hitler. I'm told that uh, people who have known him have said that he has uh, statues of Hitler, that he has Nazi uniforms, and the reason that uh, Xi Jinping admires Hitler is because Hitler came very close to taking over the world, and this this is again a, a key theme of my book Deceiving the Sky, how China's trying to dominate uh, and and achieve global supremacy. Uh another figure that he admires is Stalin and the reason that uh, he admires Stalin is that Stalin was able to control the red army and the military through a ruthless series of purges and again that's this is a tactic that is being used uh, uh by uh Xi Jinping and and the third person uh Xi Jinping admires is Mao Zedong again because he was ruthless as a dictator and was able to uh, take control of the country and create a personality cult so those are his the three uh, models for him which and is,
1: he, yeah and he hates been, whom whom does he hate
2: uh, and the people he doesn 't like are Ronald Reagan because Reagan was instrumental in bringing down the Soviet Union which had a uh, extremely negative impact for the Chinese Communist Party uh it forced the Communist Party to undertake its uh reform and opening up pr- program which was uh the product of Deng Xiaoping who is the person that Xi Jinping uh, despises the most of all uh, along with Ronald Reagan
1: now Hitler of course was the architect of the final solution the holocaust against the Jews we have a situation in China now where There are camps where the Uyghurs, the Muslim minorities, are being persecuted and uh, put in these camps. Stalin was, of course, the creator of the gulag system. uh, And so there's a Uyghur gulag. There's that kind of state there. But what China's uh, advantage is here in the 21st century is that they have tools at their disposal that Stalin never dreamed of. The surveillance state, the Internet... Uh, all these facial recognition, all these technologies that he's applying. And so I think that in some respects, the picture you paint uh, is uh, much more disturbing than some of uh, the precedents that Xi Jinping is uh, admiring. What's, uh, let's look at the title of your book. Um, Why did you use that phrase? And I understand from reading the book, it comes out of Chinese folklore, a fable. Explain the title, Deceiving the Sky, and why that's apt for your book. And this is, I want to just mention quickly, this is the second book on the threat of Chinese communism you've written in 20 years. So um, you're not new to this subject.
2: Right. Yeah. In fact, uh, uh, by way of background, in the year 2000, I wrote, uh, published a book called, the China threat and that the title was a play on what the communist government in China calls the China threat theory so i was basically saying there's no theory here this is a real threat and i outlined that threat as it manifested back in 2000 which was again technology theft uh military build up threat to taiwan and um, after i wrote that book interestingly enough every single publisher and i've done i did six other books after that told me that they would not publish a single topic china book like the china threat they said you can have chapter chapters in there but you can't have uh, a, a, a single topic um, they didn't explain why i think it was they feared that it, it wouldn't sell and the reason it wouldn't sell is because china can influence our market here and they're very effective at it they've got a massive influence campaign that you know they they buy up officials and lobbyists.
1: Yeah, we'll talk um, about that so, too in a bit, but that you really yeah, outline so, how that works book. even in capital markets. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah.
2: Deceiving the sky, my original title for it was The China Threat 2.0 and the publisher didn't like that. So we went with Deceiving the Sky. And, and I like the title because it is based on ancient Chinese strategy, and the Chinese are steeped in strategy. Uh, again, their their ideology is Marxism-Leninism with Chinese characteristics, and the Chinese characteristics are this idea of an ancient China being the Middle Kingdom, that is, the supreme place between heaven and earth. And so they see that they're using their, their communist ideology to restore this idea that China will be the global Supreme power, and a lot of their strategy goes back to the what 's known as the warring States era, which was a period about three hundred to two hundred b c and uh, many uh, people are familiar with the Chinese strategist Sun Tzu who sure who, again
1: yeah. art his, of war. his
2: thing was main, yeah the art of war said basically the acme of skill is defeating your enemy without firing a shot well there 's another book called the thirty six Strategies, which again is one of the Really deep canons for the, uh, Chinese leadership to follow. And, and it's essentially how does a weaker power defeat a stronger one? And of course, for the Chinese, that's the United States. Uh, everybody talks about China's rise, but the real reason behind that, in addition to their rise, is that they have to bring about the demise of the United States, which they're doing. <clears throat> so, Deceiving the Sky. It's, uh, the number, it's the first of the 36 strategy, and it says, deceived the sky to cross the ocean. And it it's based on a fable back uh in the Warring States era where a general was trying to get the emperor to go to war with a neighboring province and the emperor was reluctant. So the general had to fool the emperor or deceive the emperor into going to war. And the way he did that was he invited the emperor to dinner at the home of a wealthy peasant. When the emperor stepped into the peasant's house he felt the house move, and lo and behold, the house was actually a boat, and this was part of a uh, an invasion force that was heading for the neighboring province. And at this point, the emperor had to decide, do I go to war or do I go back? And he decided to go to war. And so therefore, the, this is uh, the notion for Chinese strategists is that you have to be willing to even deceive the emperor, who in Chinese culture is considered God or the sky, and so you have to even deceive the emperor. And I believe this aptly describes what exactly is taking place today in China, that the Chinese are working to uh, defeat and ultimately destroy the United States in their march for global supremacy.
1: And uh, the parable looks at their their techniques, their strategy, deception, fakery, lies, disinformation, the whole toolkit.
2: Very steeped in deception. Uh, in order to understand the chinese you have to understand deception in our culture deception is uh, definitely a uh, not a virtue it's it's a uh, it's something that's avoided and
1: it's shameful we, we,
2: tend, yeah. we yeah we tend to take people at their word in china it's just the opposite they they use deception as a as a weapon and in all that they do whether it's business diplomacy intelligence operations military operations
1: In fact, you have an entire chapter titled, How Communists Lie. And in there, you uh, quote a fellow by the name of Guo Wengui, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And he's a Chinese billionaire now in exile. And uh, you quote him as saying, China is a communist country. Communism was building a utopia, but that is fake. That is false. Basically, communists are professional liars. They are telling lies. If you believe them, they will never realize what they promise. They cannot do that. It's impossible. People are aware of what's happening in China, including the Chinese. Repression is so strong, you have to actually have to leave China to speak your mind. Is that what kind of situation we're facing there today?
2: Yes, it's, it's very much so. In fact, <clears throat> um, I was in China uh, in the summer of 2018. I traveled with, there with then Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, and um, it was an amazing trip. We were only there for a couple of days, but I really felt like here we are in 2019. We're at the early stages and or the middle stages of an information age revolution where information is ubiquitous. We're, we're on our handhelds for everything from food recipes to driving directions to communications. And yet in China, it was like an information desert. It's tightly controlled. Uh, You can't get Google or-
1: Internet uh, shut down in places, right? yeah.
2: Yeah, and they they are achieving kind of what I call high-tech totalitarianism. They are uh, really doing it. I remember back in the 90s, the Clinton administration did this unfettered engagement policy. And they said, let's give them all the internet technology. Nobody can control the internet. Uh, Clinton said that trying to control the internet will be like trying to nail jello to the wall. Well, the Chinese are pretty close to nailing jello to the wall in terms of their ability to control their population through technology. I recently did a piece in the Washington Times on their social credit system, and it's about this massive surveillance system of Hundreds of millions of cameras linked together with massive databases that, and artificial intelligence and high-speed computers that can spot people on on the street, take an image of their face, sift it through their database, and identify that person and whether they are uh, wanted by the police, whether they have uh, engaged in dissident activities. Uh, it's truly uh, kind of the 1984 totalitarian state that uh, George Orwell outlined.
1: And continual refinements, they can even tell, they can even identify someone by their gait, how they walk down the street, I understand.
2: Yes. Uh, So that even if, say, someone was able to disguise their face or cover their face, there are other means that they can use to identify people. Um, it, it is kind of frightening. I, you know, and just interestingly enough, my, I did this piece last week on the social credit system, and the New York Times today kind of followed it up today and talked about the, the massive surveillance state that China is building and exporting. They're not just using it domestically, they're using it as part of their Belt and Road Initiative, which is a kind of a Trojan horse of uh, a way to expand their power and influence uh, through economics and uh, and trade.
1: Now, you talk about uh, the unfettered engagement in the Clinton administration, but you also talk in the book, which is a really uh, absorbing account of where we are with China today and in many ways disturbing. But in the book, you go into the history here and you say that, you use the word appeasement and that from 1975 until about 2017, that the U.S. policies were basically, my description here, naive and um, not engaging the reality of what China has become. And so this was almost, you know, this was decades of this type of engagement and everything changed in 2017. And talk about when Donald Trump took office What changed? How did he change it? And where are we today?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, Yeah. Before I do that, let me let me step back into, as you mentioned, this unfettered engagement policy. I call it I call it a 40 year gamble. And the gamble was based on the notion that and, and these were not just strategies. This was actual concrete policies of the United States government. We will engage China. We will be friendly to China. We will look the other way on China's nefarious activities, whether it's human rights abuses or selling missiles and nuclear materials to uh, Pakistan and North Korea. uh, All be under the assumption that this trade was going to have this magic effect of turning this nuclear-armed communist dictatorship into a friendly, pro-Western, moderate government. It was an utter failure. Democrat and Republican.
1: administration after administration
2: both. both yes it was done both and again uh now under president trump we're making a major shift and it is like i say i've covered this issue for probably 30 years and uh it's uh trump is kind of approaching the problem from an economic standpoint but it but that standpoint has uh, repercussions for all of these other areas, whether it's law enforcement, military, diplomatic. So he's using the trade issue basically to say <clears throat> if we're going to have a relationship with China, it's going to be based on fair and free trade. And it's going to be not based on attacking our uh, economic system and stealing our ec- economic uh, prosperity and value.
1: It's not just and- about how many tariffs we're putting on them. There's much more going on there.
2: Right and, and and it's similar to what Reagan did with the Soviet Union back in the 80s. He recognized that this uh monolithic empire, the Soviet Empire could not really survive without western technology. So one of the things he did was to cut off as much as possible US technology to, to the Soviet Union. Uh the Europeans went along with it a little bit, but Reagan told them, look, you're either with us or you're with Moscow. And they, they kind of fell in line. But, uh, and that really brought about the collapse of the Soviet Union. I think Trump is applying the same strategy to China. They've stolen, uh, by the White House reports in the last couple of years, said that China has stolen between $250 billion and $600 billion annually in American intellectual property and technology. It's incredible. No nation... Incredible No nation can survive yeah, yeah. without a kind of loss.
1: you I describe mean, it as the it, largest you know, theft of wealth in American history
2: yeah yeah, and and it was kept secret for for years until Trump revealed it, so he 's going to say okay let 's see if Ch- if this Chinese miracle can survive without their stealing our best secrets and our best information um, it 's going to be i 'm not sure it 's going to work, but I mean, they may have stolen so much that they can now self-generate or possibly innovate their real problem is they can't really innovate they can copy but they can't really come up with the the kind of technologies and new technologies that that are being produced in in our silicon valley which is really kind of the engine of our economy right now now
1: back in this period you hear you heard the sentiment um... that we we just need to trade with china uh... improve our economic relations The Chinese will get uh, richer. They'll get more stuff. Gradually, they'll move towards more democratic political structures. Uh, In free market circles, you'd hear things like, well, you know, when goods don't cross borders, soldiers will, that sort of thing. But that's not how it worked out with our trade with China, is it?
2: No. In fact, like I said, China's on the move. Um, Under Deng Xiaoping, their approach was described as... bide our time, build our capabilities. They're not biding their time anymore. They're still building their capabilities, but they're expanding. And again, I mentioned they're expanding through this Belt and Road Initiative where they're literally buying up countries, and they use predatory financial and economic policies. Uh, For example, they'll go in to an underdeveloped country and tell the government there, look, we'd like to build a railroad for you, and we'll even finance it for you. And then they impose exorbitant uh, financial terms so that the nation can 't pay that, and they say, "Look we can 't pay back on this and then the chinese say well that 's our railroad now and so they're literally in that way they're they 're kind of buying up underdeveloped countries. I think their strategy is to use this to buy up the countries surrounding the United States and ultimately to encircle the United States and, and try to destroy the United States.
1: you also talk about another disturbing development and that is uh, Chinese entities entering US capital markets to uh, fund projects, including military projects. So they are uh, they have access, they have free access to US capital markets, they can raise money. But you also talk about how they might be raising money, to build aircraft carriers from US capital markets. So those people who have 401k's and mutual funds might be contributing um, towards this economic warfare that China is exercising. What's the end game for China in US capital markets?
2: Well, um, yeah, this is a really important part of deceiving the sky and it's based uh, on <clears throat> one of the real heroes is a guy named Roger Robinson and he's the guy that has identified this financial warfare mechanism of the Chinese government to try to penetrate our, our relatively unregulated uh, capital markets. So in other words, pension funds and can can purchase, can, can allow foreign investors, including companies that are under sanctions, whether it's in Russia or China, and they're getting around uh, all of these tariffs that right now is kind of the central feature of the U.S.-China trade war and so uh, Roger Robinson, like I said, he was one of the heroes of the Reagan administration. He helped bring down the Soviet Union through financial means with with Reagan and Bill Clark, the White House National Security Advisor. He's now focused on trying to do a similar thing with China by identifying these financial warfare uh, operations of the Chinese and He's making good progress. Uh, Senator Marco Rubio has introduced legislation in, in Florida, at least, to, to force pension funds to basically divest from Chinese companies that are engaged in military activities like building aircraft carriers, which, which Roger Robinson has identified, and uh, hopefully they'll bring that more nationwide. And then eventually they'll get Congress to pass some regulations. Now the financial community is opposing this. They're they're saying that you're uh, uh, going after and undermining free trade. Um, but I think that uh, looking closely and through books like mine, "The Deceiving the Sky," it will help educate people to understand this is an existential threat to the United States. The the problem of communist China. It's not global warming. It's not the Russians, although that is a significant threat. It is the threat posed by China. They do not wish us well, and they are working actively to undermine and subvert the country, whether it's through economic means or whether it's through exporting fentanyl to kill tens of thousands of Americans with as part of the opioid crisis.
1: Now, you say explicitly, China is not an adversary, it's an enemy, and we need to deal with them on those terms you said um, i want to go back to what you said earlier about technology theft there's a big issue a big controversy now in the west about whether to use huawei 5g technology some people including yourself if i'm not mistaken view that huawei technology as a trojan horse it will be used against us in very dangerous ways. So there's de- there's a debate going on in the United States and in the UK. I watched uh, Sky News a couple of days ago when a Chinese Huawei executive came on the show to t- explain at great length why there's no threat from Huawei. We're trying to create jobs. We're trying to bring advanced technology. And all I could think about was the title of your book. He said this He was with a straight face and he went on and on and on. So... You say that Huawei is actually connected to the Chinese military. Describe the threat from Huawei's 5G technology for us.
2: Uh, I I will say that the U.S. government is solidly behind my view that Huawei is basically a stalking horse for the Chinese government. And again, it it fits into this overall use of economic power to gain uh, international uh, supremacy. And so Huawei Technologies is the largest telecommunications company in the world, and the reason it's the largest is because it's been subsidized by the chinese government um, and there are very few competitors uh, who can who can compete with that that are not state companies like that and uh, so the the u s government has recognized the threat uh, just last month the Federal Communications Commission for the first time banned the use of Huawei technology equipment in a lot of our rural uh, American networks, uh, including some that, like in Wyoming, are right next to our nuclear missile bases. And they end up using Huawei uh, equipment because it's cheaper. And, I'm sure that's a coincidence. Yeah, everybody says, oh, it's 40% cheaper. But what it, what they really don't understand is that this equipment comes with the back door into the Chinese intelligence services. Uh, China has an intelligence law that requires companies like Huawei. We can argue whether it's state owned or not or private. The fact is they are uh, close to the Chinese military. They are literally an arm of the Chinese intelligence service when it comes to the ability to collect and, and, and use data, private data. And so the Trump administration is making the case to the Europeans, look, you may not agree with us about Huawei, but what about your people's private data? It's going to be compromised by using this Huawei equipment, and the message is beginning to resonate, and it's beginning to get out there.
1: We're running short of time, Bill, so I want to wrap up with a question do you get pushback from some people you know we've got a whole establishment and diplomats military intelligence security agencies do they say you're basically overcooking this whole issue that it's not as bad as you say Do they say that you're causing a problem here what kind of reaction Um, we get from those
2: what kind of reaction are you getting the opposition to my view comes from two places one the chinese government which again <clears throat> their Their goal and motive is to discredit anyone, not just me but anyone that opposes their agenda uh, and They have uh, a lot of supporters in the United States. Uh, we used to call them panda huggers uh, that is people that have been, if not in the literal pay of the Chinese government they 're ideological fellow travelers who okay. somehow view the Chinese communist system as the 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 path of the future and again this is one of the problems of our system is that you know one of the few places in the world where you can find a lot of Marxists is on the American college campuses and they are dominating the intellectual debate so they're trying to discredit anyone that challenges their views you know I'm I'm an old cold warrior I I cut my teeth as a journalist uh, battling uh, the Soviet ideology and and activities. And uh, I see uh, the Chinese today as as a new Cold War. I mean, the problem is for many years, uh, only one side has been waging, and that's the Chinese. Now, under Trump, they're starting to fight back. And I'm really encouraged that eventually we can convince the Chinese and other people of the world that this communist system is not going to be uh, around much longer.
1: And your your wish is that not only would this uh, threat be met with equal uh, conviction but that the Chinese people would be liberated.
2: Yes, absolutely. And and uh, you know, I just interviewed the Secretary of State today about this and I asked him about a speech he gave where he said it's he distinguished clearly between the Ch- Communist Party of China And the Chinese people and he said the Chinese people do not want a communist system they've seen what it's like in the United States they've seen what a free and open system is and can do and they don't want a system of repression of support for rogue nations and terrorists and uh, they want a free and open system And, and I think that it's time that we recognize that and start supporting the democratic forces in and around China for real democratic change
1: Bill, thanks for coming on Act Online today.
2: Thank you very much for having me. As always,
0: thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I have had so much fun producing this podcast for you in 2019, and I look forward to continuing to produce this podcast for you in 2020. Together, we will explore new topics and hear from new guests and read some more books along the way. If you ever want to reach out to me or anyone else on the podcast team here, you can contact us at actinline at actin.org. That's actinline, A-C-T-O-N-L-I-N-E at actin.org. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast app. This episode of Act Line was edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel.